Okay, well, I wanted to make sure they're clear because I will give this little uh, preface before we get going this morning. Uh, this morning is, um, we're going to be diving into Genesis, and for any of you who've read Genesis, you know that it is not as uh, G and PG as uh, we teach it in Sunday school class. And so this morning we're going to get into some of those heavier topics that um, might be a little more on the PG-13 plus side. So I'll behave myself, but just so you know, God's word is not always safe, and I'm just giving you fair warning. We're diving into some of those territories this morning that don't feel so safe or warm and fuzzy. So just a preface. But uh, when I was, or let me just stop here. I'm 37. Okay, I'm going on 38 this year. That means I grew up mostly in like the 80s and 90s was when I was really into cartoons. And so cartoons were on the morning on Channel 4, dial up Channel 4. You watch Channel 4 in the morning for cartoons. You could watch in the afternoon for like the Disney afternoon stuff after school kind of thing, which was fantastic. And then Saturday morning cartoons were actually still a real thing where all morning was just a wonderful day of cartoons. And during the midst of that, they knew we were there, right? They knew that all the kids were there watching, and so they were really good at marketing. They were really good at getting us hooked, so they would tell us about all the cool new toys that are coming out. They would tell us about all the cool new cereals that we should be rotting our teeth away with. They told us about all the awesome things that we totally needed in our life, and we'd sit and watch the commercials just as intently as the cartoons because you needed to know what cool new things were available, all the fun games and all these amazing things. Now, it's because of those cartoons, because of those commercials more so, that we really had this laundry list when it came time for birthdays or Christmas of stuff we wanted. It's like Silas. We just celebrated his birthday yesterday with family. And every time you ask him, he had this laundry list of things he wanted. People were like, what does he want? I'm like, what does he not want, right? It was the same thing for us. And we wanted everything, and our eyes were so big. And every time you go to a toy store, it was just like, I want one of everything because I knew about all of it. So when you would see something like this commercial I'm about to show you, you can only imagine what it did to 10-year-old me because this was 1991. I was 10 years old, Elias age. You can only imagine what this kind of commercial inspired in my mind. Take a, ch- take a look at this little uh, advertisement here from 1991. Once a year, two kids in America get to live out the ultimate dream. I still don't believe it. I think I'm going to wake up in about two seconds. It's Nickelodeon's Super Toy Run, a game-grabbing toy-snagging rampage through a KB Toy Works store. Send in the most postcards, so Mark Martelli of Reading, Pennsylvania, won the grand prize, a five-minute toy run. You got two minutes, you're doing great! Jessica Williams of Edmonds, Washington, won first prize, a three-minute run. The winners went wild. 108 video games. One house. Five bikes. Eight board games. Seven dogs. One mint. Three beanbags. Six action figures. Eight stuffed animals. Five models. One human skull. Two sleds. Nine radio control. Over $9,100 worth of toys. So much stuff. <laughs> the store manager almost fainted. And the winner did. Nickelodeon Super Toy Run. More proof that. And Nickelodeon kids really do it, and that's a fact. Nickelodeon Super Toy Run was brought to you by KB Toy Stores and Domino's Pizza. KB Toy Stores and Domino's Pizza. That's good old days. So, uh, oh yeah, it's going again. Sorry, I didn't set it to not go again. <sighs> my bad, Dan. That was me with all the noise. Sorry, I caught my cord and pulled it out, and my microphone got mad. I apologize. So, this commercial, you can only imagine, 10 years old, all of the amazing things I've seen on TV that I could have. You let me lose for five minutes in a toy store. What kind of damage could I do? Like, 
the, the, the mindset of how fast could I get around to all these different departments, grab all these different things, how many video games would be in my arms, what kind of board games could I pile into that cart, what are the rules, like the imagination is running wild with all of this laundry list of stuff I could acquire, and how cool would it be to have that thing which I've always wanted, and that thing which I've always wanted, and not have to pay a dime for it, oh wow, imagine just running through the store and going, oh I didn't even know I wanted one of those, just grab it, it would be amazing, right? Now, the 10-year-old me thought this would be the coolest thing in the world. 37-year-old me looks back and goes, I know how this works, because I've been through a lot of Christmases and other things now. I have kids of my own. I understand how this works. This is the thing I want most desperately. This is the list of things I want most desperately. This will be the coolest thing ever. That is, until next year when the next commercial comes on, and they've done something even cooler, right? It's that Christmas toy thing where it's like we play for it with it for like a month or two, and then it loses its luster. It's not quite as cool anymore, and then all of a sudden it's like, eh, yeah, I mean, it's all right, and it like finds dust on a shelf somewhere in the room, and then all of a sudden your room is just, like my kids, like it's just, there's so, can we just get rid of some stuff? There's so much stuff in here, right? We realize that though in my mind this laundry list of all these cool, amazing toys and games and all this awesome stuff I could get would be the neatest thing ever for a while. But by the next year, I would be so over most of the stuff that I got, and I would have all this new laundry list of cool new things that I wanted that didn't exist last year, that I would be just as unsatisfied a year later as I was before having this big sweepstakes run. And I think about that in terms of where we've been discussing in the sickness. We've been having this conversation about the sickness that exists in us, how sin affects us, and we talked about how when the brokenness of this relationship begins and we turn inwardly, we start focusing on ourselves and we start being more concerned with what we want for ourselves than what God wants for us. And we start taking advice and the knowledge of good and evil for ourselves. We stop trusting people, right? We keep them at arm's length. We know we're not trustworthy. We assume they're not trustworthy. The next week we talked about this insecurity, this need to build an image up for ourselves. How do I make myself look and feel better when I know I'm really not all that great? The next week we talked about this, this vengeance idea, this mindset of one of the easiest ways for me to feel better or look better or have the attention diverted off myself is to put it on other people and to tear them down and to make them look worse and just tear down their image. And this morning it's interesting because where we're headed this morning has a lot more to do with the desires that really don't necessarily have to be involved in either of those ways. It's not necessarily always about building ourselves up. And it's not always about tearing someone down, but we've lost all regard for the situation completely, and we just want to grab whatever looks good, whatever might be satisfying in the moment, whatever might be desirable to us in the moment, living for those things, those wants, those desires that just show up in our life. And this morning, we're going to dive into Genesis chapter 9 in just a moment to kind of look at this story that takes place that we don't talk about a whole lot. But before we really go there and get into God's word, let's pray. Father, I love you, and you know that, um, Father, my heart's desire for this morning is not for us to um, just talk about difficult stuff for the sake of talking about difficult stuff, but to really see the similarities and the connections with what was happening in the life of your people then versus how we live our lives now so that we can identify that evil, and Father, sometimes we just get so busy and so focused on so many different things that it's hard to really just calm ourselves down and be still 
and hear your voice and know how you're trying to speak to us and change us. And so this morning, Father, I pray that as we have this conversation, as we look at your word, that you would quiet our hearts and our minds, that we would lay down all the distractions that we walked into this room with, and that we would be able to hear from you and be transformed by you. And that it wouldn't be anything about the words that I say, but Father, it would be you speaking to our hearts and transforming our lives. We just give this time to you and pray that you bless us in the reading of your word. It's in the name of Jesus I pray all these things. Amen. So now, you heard me say we're going to Genesis chapter 9, and you might be going, but Nick, we were in Genesis chapter 4 last week. That's kind of a big jump. Now, we were talking at the end of Genesis chapter 4 last week about this little genealogy with Lamech, and I told you that sometimes when we get into these genealogies, it can be a little weary, right? This guy had this guy, and he was this old, and this was his son, and then this son had this son, and this is how old he was, and we just kind of feel repetitive, and we, like, we go on autopilot. Well, guess what? Last week I read a little bit of a genealogy, this week we're going to ch skip chapter 5, which is mostly that. It's the lineage from Adam to his descendant Noah, right? So it just helps us see how Adam's line continues down to bring us to Noah, because he's prepping us for what's about to come. Do we get into Genesis chapter 6 now? Genesis chapter 6, some of you may be wishing that I would stop and camp out in for like months, because Genesis chapter 6 talks about this weird little thing that starts to happen here at the very beginning that not very many people talk about because we don't have good answers for it. There's a lot of speculation, there's a lot of understanding, there's a lot of ideas, but this passage talks about these sons of God or sons of gods that come down and, and have children with the daughters of man, and there's these Nephilim, and there's all this weird talk about something odd going on here, and we're kind of like, what is up with that? And there's a lot of good questions. I don't have any good answers to share, and it's not the point of where we're going this morning. So I don't want you to think that I'm just trying to avoid it for the sake of going, he doesn't want to talk about the weird stuff. I think it's important for us to lean in and wrestle with some of the weird stuff that exists in Scripture that we don't have all the answers for. But in the midst of the series we're in now, I think it might be misuse of our time to try to wrestle with that one right this minute. But... The point of chapter 6, and the reason I even bring it up at all, is this starting in verse 5. Something very important as this Nephilim thing is introduced, verse 5 kind of gives us this picture. We may not fully understand what all of these Nephilim and these what all is happening in the first four verses, but it says in verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Things have gotten to a pretty desperate state. Things have continued to get worse to the point where every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. All this picture that is painted in the first four verses is ultimately leading up to say the world has gotten so bad that man only ever thinks about evil thoughts and therefore God regretted creating humanity and he decides he's going to wipe humanity but... That very last verse there, or I say the very last verse, the very last verse of that section, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So, this is where we pick up this story where God starts to speak to Noah and he says, Listen, I know it's never rained before, but I'm going to make it rain. Okay? Water has never fallen from the sky, but I'm going to make water fall from the sky for the first time. And the waters are going to rise and cover all of the earth and all of humanity and all of creation that exists as you know it will be wiped out and changed except for you and your family. You're going to build an, a boat, a very large boat, not just a boat for the six of you, but a boat that is large enough to house you and two of every kind of animal and seven of, a f 
certain kinds of animals, and I'm going to build this thing. You're going to build this thing. I'm going to tell you how so that I can rescue you and your family. And so Noah, despite never seeing rain in his life, despite not fully understanding the circumstances, starts to build this boat because he's listening and trusting to God. And he's faithful in following through on these instructions. It doesn't mean Noah was perfect to this point in his life. It just simply means he had found favor in God's sight, and therefore God was going to use him, and he was faithful to be able to continue this work and to listen and to do it. And therefore God saves and rescues Noah and his family, his three sons, their wives, and his wife. And he brings them through this flood, 40 days and 40 nights it rains, covers the entire earth. They've got all these animals they're taking care of. And here we are, the waters have risen and it's been raining for 40 days and 40 nights. But that doesn't mean we get off the boat when the rain stops. There's all this time where the water has to settle and evaporate and settle into this environment that we now understand, this picture of earth that we now know so well. Everything's settling down. They're on the boat a really long time. But then here we go. They step off the boat. Every, got Noah's sending out these birds, and finally one of them doesn't come back. It must be fine. Everything's good. He's brought back the olive branch. We know it's safe to get off the boat. And so they open up things, and they get off the boat. And here we're kind of worked our way into chapter 8. The floods subside. All this story has kind of taken place. And we remember we started this series. We talked about chapter 8, verse 20. It says this, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. So here's the thing. God says, never again will I destroy the earth. You've presented this offering. The aroma is pleasing to God. And in that moment in his heart, he says, never again will I flood and destroy everything because your heart is always evil, even from youth. It's not a very hopeful message, is it, right? But God is in this moment saying, hey, I regretted making mankind, I've wiped it out, but here's the important thing you need to understand. Wiping out all of humanity, just to start with a relatively good person, he's still just a relatively good person. It does not mean he is the perfect person that will solve this problem. It doesn't mean he is the salvation of all mankind. Starting over again with one decent guy does not make the world good again. God has a plan for how he will continue that work. But this, in and of itself, will not do it. Therefore, I do not need to ever flood it again because you understand it won't work. But he's hit this reset button and helped us to understand that I'm going to start again working through the life of Noah. I'm going to start with this one faithful man and his family. But it really quickly kind of changes here. And the tone of the story, this is where we kind of see these offerings being presented. And God says, listen. To Noah and his sons, he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is beginning of chapter 9. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast on the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they shall be delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And, I, and as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its lifeblood, or with his life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. 
From every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So just to clarify, here's this picture. God's pleased. He says, be fruitful and multiply. He says, I've given you all these plants to eat, but now I'm giving you all these animals. But here's the important thing. Make sure you cook out the blood. Make sure there's no blood left in this meat before you eat it because this is the lifeblood that gives life. And don't take the blood of another because, again, it's kind of this another moment where God is referring back to the fact that man was created in God's image. And to take that life is a very serious offense. To to shed that lifeblood of another man is a very serious offense. And so... This picture kind of continues. He says, be fruitful, multiply. He says to Noah and his sons, here's all this stuff I'm going to establish. I'm going to establish this covenant with you. And this covenant, it's a promise that I will never again flood the earth. Here's this rainbow that will remind me and remind you of my promise to never again flood the earth. There's this beautiful picture. They're offering offerings. God's speaking all this blessing, all this gift on their life. He's giving them a little advice and warning. He's given them this rainbow as a sign of this new covenant. Everything seems to be pretty good after all this long time of being on the boat, after all the hardships they've faced, after all the difficult circumstances they've come across, the things God has brought them through and shown himself to be good in. But then we get to verse 18 and things get a little weird. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began, or began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the son of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem, Ham, or Shem and Jepheth took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from the wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. He said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall, be, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Jepheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years All of the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Now, this is the part we stop, and we don't cover this part in Sunday school. We stop at the rainbow, right? Like, so when we're teaching the little kids downstairs, typically we don't cover this part for good reason, right? The the ark is a great story. It's a great moment where the rainbow appears, and then this weird thing happens. And part of it is we don't even really talk about it in church very often because we really aren't sure 100% what happened. And at first sight, we might read that and go, this seems kind of messed up. Because in our minds, and especially the way we think sometimes, I've heard people kind of translate this story in this way. Noah planted a vineyard. Noah got drunk. Noah laid around naked. His son walked in, saw the nakedness, and then told his brothers about it. His brothers thought, oh, that's shameful. They covered him up. And then... Ham is the one who gets in trouble. 
And some might read that and go, what did Ham do that was all that bad? The guy just walked in and saw his dad naked. I mean, yeah, it was, but that, wasn't that Noah's fault? Noah's the one who got drunk. Noah's the one who did this. Why is Ham the one getting cursed? He's the cursed father of the Canaanites. The Canaanites are the ones who are occupying the promised land that God tells them to go in and wipe out later, right? He's cursed in a very serious way. This ongoing enemy of the Israelite people come from this man. But the problem is we, we really don't grasp this full picture of what's happening. Noah planted a vineyard, may not have fully understood what all he was doing with that vineyard to that point, but he got drunk, he passes out. There's this sense of not being 100% sure what's going on in this tent. However, I'm going to turn to Leviticus 18 if you want to go ahead and start flipping there, but I want to preface something as I say that. If you didn't know, the first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. First five books, Pentateuch. I took a class on the Pentateuch from a really uh, fantastic professor when I was in college and learned a whole lot of things. And I remember talking about this passage of Scripture. But before we get into that, I specifically want to remind us that a lot of scholars, most, consider that the Pentateuch, these first five books, were written by the same author. If you'll notice, Genesis gives this kind of historical account of the things of how humanity started. It kind of paints this picture of all these things that are leading up to this moment. It's its its own kind of standalone thing where God starts establishing Abraham and his people to start working through the Israelite people. But by the time we get to Exodus, we're kind of full on into Moses, helping the people escape from Egypt, leading the Exodus. And then we kind of have all these numbers, Deuteronomy, the giving of the law, the explaining of the law, how all this Levitical law is going to work, how all these things are going to happen. And ultimately, Deuteronomy, these books, lead us up to the point where Moses is no longer going to be leading. He's going to have passed away, and Joshua is going to take over. And the sixth book in the Bible is Joshua. So a lot of scholars believe that the first five books of the Bible, whether it's Moses or not, they believe Moses writes these books, okay? It's possible. We don't know for sure, but possible. Moses writes these first five books. What is important to understand is this believed that these first five books are written by the same author, regardless of it's Moses or not. So the same guy who's writing Genesis chapter 9 is writing Leviticus chapter 8, right? So Leviticus chapter 8 starts like the, or sorry, 18, my bad, my bad, 18. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So there's this reminder. You're straying away from how Egypt lived. You're staying away from how Canaan lived. You're focused on how I tell you to live, and here's what I'm telling you to do. This is God's presentation of this understanding of the law and these unlawful sexual relations. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister. This goes on for a while. Okay? About all the relatives you should not uncover the nakedness of. And I read that to point this out. The ESV, which I'm reading from, is a very literal translation. If I were to write a note 
And I say, man, we had a birthday party for Silas yesterday. It was really cool. I say that to you all. You understand that we had a great time at the birthday party. It was fun. It was cool. If I give that to somebody long time ago or far into the future, they may go, why was it cold? Was it, it was April. Was it really a cold day? Was it? Because cool, to me, in my era, my time, used in the right context means it was enjoyable, it was fun, it was a good time. For other people, it means cold weather. Other times and other generations far down the line, it may mean something completely different. Who knows? The transition of words over the course of time is interesting. And here there is this expression, this phrase that is written out, uncovering the nakedness of. However, there are many other translations, um, and even though the message itself is not a translation, it's a paraphrase, and I recognize that. Eugene Peterson, the man responsible for writing the message, was a very adamant Hebrew scholar. He actually didn't... planned originally on being a pastor. He planned on being a Hebrew scholar, a professor, a teacher of Hebrew. Had a lot of study. Whenever you look at some of these other translations, when you look at the message, you look at some of the ways this phrase, because of the historical and contextual study of the time, has changed. It is, do not have sex with whoever. Now, I, I say all that, and it seems like we're spending a lot of time talking about this really thing that makes a lot of us uncomfortable. But we go back to Genesis and what's happening in this tent. You can imagine Noah has gotten drunk. He's in the tent. Leviticus tells us, do not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. It really kind of opens up a whole can of worms as to what might have happened. I've heard multiple takes on it. In that class, I remember my professor saying, some scholars believe that Ham walked in on his parents. Some people believe Ham came in and for some reason was enticed by what he saw and violated his father. Some people believe that he was enticed and violated his mother. We really don't know. It's really uncomfortable no matter what way you cut it. The matter of the fact is he comes out and he tells his brothers, here's what just happened. And they say, that's not right. And they go fix it. They cover it up. They not, not cover it up as in keep a secret, but cover him up and... And try to take away this temptation, this desire. And, and we might read that, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us. Because for us, it's like going, that just seems sick and broken and messed up and wrong. And, and that may not connect with us at all to make that some sort of desire that would seem appealing. The toy, let's go back to the Toy Story thing, Nick. That seemed innocent and fun. Let's go back to the Toy Store. That was a cooler place to be right now. But the matter of fact is, there are a lot of different people who see things a lot differently in the world and when the desire strikes and hits, we may not know what it's going to be. It may be that toy run by, I don't even know I wanted that, but I'm going to take it. Because the way sin infects us and desire works, there comes a point where we, the disregard that has grown in us for other people takes away some of our concern and value about how this is going to affect them. I'm only worried about how this is going to affect me. Sometimes the devaluation of ourselves, we know we're broken, we know we're such a mess, we just don't even care anymore. Sometimes we know what we take a hold of as a desire is going to wreck us, and we just don't care. Ultimately, there are desires in our life that may seem disgusting and messed up. We're going to keep them a secret, we're going to keep them to ourselves. I'm still not sure why he walked out and told his brothers, despite what happened in that tent. But he did. In the midst of it, all we can learn is, desires come in whether we expect them to or not, and sometimes we take a hold of things that we should never take a hold of because the desire strikes us. 
Now, for some of us, it's like, well, good news. I am not in any way, shape, or form enticed by the things you're talking about. In fact, I'm really just concerned and disturbed with the fact you're talking about them in church at all. But the fact of the matter is, there are people, whether we want to admit it or not, the sexual temptations and desires of this world, whether it be pornography, whether it be extra relationships, relationships outside of marriage, relationships that are extramarital, those things happen, and not just outside of the church, but in the church constantly. And for us to neglect and avoid them, the desires of other substances and drugs and the abuse of different things that happen in our world, they happen not just outside of the church, but inside of the church. And the reality is, we are so scared to be honest and trusting and open whenever we face those trials and those sins that they consume us internally. And then we hear some story on the news about a pastor who's fallen because he was with some prostitute somewhere. And everybody's just taken aback and shame because he wasn't able to be honest with the struggles he was facing. He wasn't able to be real and, and trustworthy people with, with the, the temptations and the desires he was wrestling with because who wants to talk about that kind of stuff? And who feels safe talking about that kind of stuff? And I understand this morning we may look at those kind of things and go, man, I know they're real and I know they exist and that stinks, but they're not real for me. And so good news, this symptom of sin doesn't affect me. But the reality is this is kind of the, the nth degree. When we started talking about evil, I said this is the kind of evil that pops into our mind when we think about evil. But if we strip this down to the core of what we're talking about, it is desire. Seeing something that should not be something we take a hold of and taking a hold of it because it seems enticing to us in the moment. Running through life like it's some toy store where every time something goes, ooh, yeah, that would be good. I'm going to take that. That'll make me feel better. Ooh, I want this. That'll make me feel better. Ooh, I want this. It'll make me feel better. It's not just about sexual desire. It's not just about addiction. It's not just about the most heinous sins in our life. It can become the simplest selfish thing that continues to destroy. Maybe it could be as simple as this. I show up from work after work, and maybe not me, but maybe it's one of us. Show up from work. After a long, tired day, and I've I've worked, I've had a lot going on, and I walk into the house and say, you know what, I don't care what's going on, I just need me time, and walk and shut ourselves in somewhere else, because what seems desirable and appealing to me in this moment is peace and quiet. It doesn't matter that my family needs me, it doesn't matter how rude I was to my kids, it doesn't matter how much I yelled at them to shush, because you're being loud and obnoxious and I can't handle it right now, all that matters in this moment is me and what I need for me. And I'm going to take that selfish desire to take a hold of the rest and the peace and quiet that I want, despite how it affects other people. Maybe it's as simple as, you know, I, maybe it's just like the toy store. I see in this commercial and I want that new thing. And you know what? I know I've got all these bills and I know I should be giving money here and I know I should be doing something more productive here. Maybe I should have helped that guy over there but I really wanted this new TV or this new fancy thing that's going to make my life better. And you know what? I don't really care what other needs there are right now. I'm going to spend something. I'm going to treat myself, right? Treat yourself. And therefore, you take for what yourself, for what you want, and not worry about what other people need or what other things are going on. Maybe it's the same thing with our time. You know, I know there's that study getting ready to come up, and I should probably go because, man, I don't know if our marriage is all that great, or I don't know, I could probably use help here or you know, maybe that men's study would be the perfect thing for me because of what's going on in my life. But, you know, Monday night, I got that show I like to watch. And I don't know, I just it's one more thing to my week, and I'm just not sure. 
I don't know, we can come up with a hundred different excuses as to why all the comfort of where we're living and where we're staying is more enticing than things we should be doing. And ultimately, that's what desire is. We don't take the bigger context of the picture into account. We only take into account what we feel and what we desire in the moment. It doesn't how it matter how it affects other people. It doesn't matter how it affects the bigger picture of God's goodness. God has just rescued this family from the destruction of everything. He is starting to rebuild through this family, be fruitful and multiply. Here's this covenant and this promise. He is establishing as much good as he can put into this situation. He's trying to work towards this end goal of reestablishing the good that he created the world to be. And Ham is basically saying, I know there's a bigger picture. I know my family's there. I'm going to take what seems desirable and beneficial to me despite what it looks like in the bigger context of God's good. I'm going to take good based off my definition. I'm going to take what feels good, what looks good, what sounds good in the moment and not take into account God's larger good. And it could be simple ways that we take it. It could be really extreme ways. The measuring stick for how we give in to selfish desires in my life is, when I do this, is it about me or is it about accomplishing God's picture of good in this world? Is it, excuse me, is this about me or is this about how I can benefit or take care of or protect the good that God desires for my family? Is this about me or is this about investing in the good of my church or my workplace or whatever God wants me to be doing and for the well-being of others in this world? It's really simple. We start to wrestle with our desires and the decisions we're making. Is this all about me and my comfort and my desire or my, ooh, this will make me feel better? Or do we understand the bigger picture of how it impacts God's picture of good? And so when we look at this big scope of things, it's, it's hard to talk through this kind of passage. And there's lots of other passages that would probably be better to look at in terms of discussing desire and temptation and how we take a hold of the things that aren't ours. It doesn't really matter what happened in that tent. We know it was evil, and it was evil that followed God's good. And sometimes we know what God's good is. We've seen him work in powerful and amazing ways. We know what it means for us to follow Christ. We know what it means for us to drop everything and sell everything, like that rich young ruler who asked Jesus, what do I really need to inherit eternal life? And he says, follow the laws. And Good, I got that part. Good. I can handle that. And that's kind of where we sit. We feel like, hey, you know, as long as I kind of stay generally in line and follow the rules generally, I'll be okay. And then he says, no, the other thing you need to do is sell everything you own and follow me. And the rich young ruler goes, And he starts thinking about all the desires that he has for his possessions, his wealth, his name, his stuff, all the things he wants to hold on to that are beneficial for him, and he drops his head and he walks away. Because Christ isn't enough, he still needs all the other things. And at the end of the day, we're left wrestling with our own desires and our own sense of what does it mean to follow Jesus. Can I get by with this much? I I love high school kids. They always ask, how far is too far? What's too much? Like, when do I cross that line? When is it no longer forgivable? And when have I crossed into, oops, 
We're always trying to draw those boundaries and those lines so we don't know how far we can get without messing up. And it's the same with following Jesus. How much do I really have to commit to still get in? Because ultimately, I just want to make sure I don't go to hell. And Jesus is saying it's not about, this world is not about your desires. This world is not about you getting what's good for you. This world is not about you feeling better, you avoiding the hurt, you avoiding all those things that we do. We take on some of these desires to make us feel better. We take on some of these desires just because we feel like it. We take some of these desires because we have a lack of regard for other people. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, do we need all of these desires in our life to make us feel some sense of better? Or can we truly rest in the contentment of God's goodness? And is he enough for us at the end of the day? Or do we need to continue to fill our lives with other things that will not satisfy in the long run? Just like those toys would have never made a kid happy for more than a year. The desires that we fill ourselves with are just temporary relief. And most of the time, not even that. They just heap on more shame and guilt sometimes, depending on what it is. They cause more hurt and more rift in relationship, more disregard for other people. And the reality is we are not living in contentment with our relationship for God's goodness and who he is and what he desires for us. And so the question this morning that we're going to wrestle with, and we're going to ask you to wrestle with as we come into prayer time, is are you content with that goodness and that relationship? Or are we still filling our life with desires, no matter how small or how big? It doesn't have to be that you've got some deep addiction to some dark, hidden secret, but it might be. But it also might be just as simple as, you know what, I want to use my time, my money, my resources, my life, my things for me and not for other people. Both are pretty broken. So the worship team is going to come and we're going to sing and we're going to pray. And this morning I simply want you to ask God this, God... Do I trust in your goodness? And am I content with your goodness? Am I content with the plan that you have for my life? Or do I want to find all of my joy and all of my longing, all of my desires in this world and what it has to offer? Or can I truly be content in who you are and chase after you with everything I have, regard, disregarding all the temptations and all the things that are on every aisle and every side? That's, this world is a toy store full of goodies when we live to fulfill our own desires. The reality is that we're going to run around every aisle trying to grab up every desire we can get our hands on before our time expires? Or are we going to fall at the feet of Jesus and say, you're enough, and I don't need the rest? And so this morning, I want you to wrestle with that. I'm going to ask you to stand, and I'm going to ask you to simply wrestle with that question. God, what is it I'm still holding on to? What are the desires of my heart that are selfish in nature, and they don't look to your goodness, but they only look to my temporary fulfillment? And ask God to reveal that to you so that you can start to lay at his feet and drop that right there. If you've got some other thing you're facing, some other struggle, some other thing you just need prayer, or we'd love to pray with you. If you want to get to know Jesus and understand the goodness of his love, we'd love to talk to you and introduce you to that. Whatever it is you're facing this morning, if you need prayer, please come forward. If you just want to sit there, that's fine too. Whatever it is you need, fall at his feet this morning. Let's pray. Father, desires of this world are sometimes heavy to talk about and scary to talk about, and it's hard for us to trust even you with our shortcomings. Father, I pray that you would help us to get over ourselves and to realize that we were created in your image, and that is how you see us, as your children. And just like our own children, when they fail and when they mess up, Father, it's hard, it's hurtful, it's tough to get through, but we love them all the same. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to realize your love 
for us and that your desire for us is to fall at your feet and let go of the sin and the desires and the things that gum up our life. Pray you'd help us to recognize these desires and these things that keep us from truly seeing your face because we're still so focused on them that we're not truly resting contently in your presence. And so, Father, this morning my prayer is that you would be enough for each and every one of us in this place, that we would stop chasing our own desires and that we would chase you with all of our heart. It's in the wonderful name of Jesus I pray all these things.